listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. Well, it's good to be back. Um, we were away last week and had a good time away um, as a family, and, uh, but we miss this family, and it's so good to see you folks again and excited about this next week and all that God has in store. The ushers are coming forward. You can open your Bibles to Luke 23. They have uh, Bibles. They have pens with them. If you need a Bible, we'd love for you to be following along in the Word of God along with us, so make sure that you take a Bible. If you don't have one, we'd love uh, for you to take that home if you don't have one at home so you can read it, study it, and have your life transformed by it through the power of the gospel. Um, That is something amazing that can happen as children of God, that that God's word um, becomes our our light and it becomes our our hope and something we can cling to in in a very broken world. So we're going to be looking at at Luke 23 in in a moment and and, and have your pens ready. There's going to be some things I'd encourage you to write down so you can take it home and you can study scripture. There's verses to write down along to, to study with this. Encourage you to be doing that throughout the course of this week. One of the things that can really make my blood boil, and probably even the same for you in one way or another, is injustice. When you see something and it's going on, and you're like, that is not fair. That is just not right. For, in sports, for example, right? I mean, that's a pretty big one, right? You know, you're playing, or you're watching, your kids are playing, and you see this blatant foul or a penalty, and, and there's no call, and you're like, boo, boo, ref. I remember going to junior hockey games in college when they used to have just three, um, three uh, linesmen or, or uh, officials on the ice, and when they'd miss a call, we would start singing three blind mice, three blind mice, you know, really loud, and now they add four on the ice, and now it's all messed up. You can't sing that at four blind mice, just doesn't work the same, you know, but, but there's other injustices that go on, things that are more serious than sports or some of the, 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 the small things in life. There, there are some that are a lot more serious, and, 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 and for example, another injustice is when someone says something about you that's not true. Someone is spreading lies, rumors, gossip, things that aren't true. I mean, does that make your blood boil? Yeah, certainly, it certainly can do that for for all of us. It's maddening, and it can be just downright hurtful when that sort of thing takes place. You read and you watch the news at at times, and and, and at times you just want to bury your head in the sand, and you don't want to go on any more news feeds, or you don't want to watch any more um, news programs, because it just seems like at times it's just like so maddening as as we see things, we see injustice, whether that be political scandals and and fraud taking place, or, or crime that seems to go unpunished, or, or very light sentences for convicted criminals, and we're like, where's the justice in this world? This isn't fair. This isn't right. Or the terror attacks that, that are going on, it seems, daily, as I mentioned just this morning, reading about what took place in Egypt early this morning, and, and just seeing just a world that is so fallen and so broken, and, and, and the chemical attacks this past week in Syria, just how horrific and terrible, and and I watched some of those video clips, disturbing, I'm telling you, of what that chemical weapons, what, what it can do and, and how it caused people to die and to suffer. And you think there has to be a response. And, and yes, there's been a bit of a response, but, 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 but we just see even the corruption and the confusion and everything going all around this whole political mess in our world. And we just seem, at times it just seems there's no justice. It's just injustice wherever we go, wherever we look. 
And then over the last number of years, and then more recently in the last few months in Calgary, there was the case of Douglas Garland, a man who was convicted and found guilty and sentenced to 75 years in prison for the gruesome and brutal killing of a Calgary couple and their young grandson back in 2014. And it was all happened over a petty grudge. And since being found guilty and sentenced to his 75 years just in, in two, early 2017, not once but twice now he's been sent to hospital because he has been beat up in prison. And I don't know about you, but there's a little part of me, when I heard that, I go, good. He's getting what he deserves. Maybe there is a little bit of justice in this world. And, and I don't know if you're tempted to think like that, but sometimes I'm tempted to think like that when it seems like, okay, maybe there is a little bit of justice that this man continues to live even though he took the lives in a gruesome way of three innocent people. We see this injustice and we wonder, where is justice to be found? Or maybe it's in a more personal thing. We look at our own lives and we look at then the lives of others. And we look at our lives, our situations. It's been tough slugging. Maybe it's, you've experienced a tough um, upbringing or ex experiencing even now perhaps a tough season in life, whether it be with your job or your marriage or your family. And you, you look at others. You can't help but look at others and see how easy it seems they have. How come they have it so lucky? How come, you know, they're so blessed, you know, and I'm trusting God and, and, and I, you know, don't really have that appearance of blessing in my life. And, and we become very self-focused in these ways and there's a part of us that says internally, we probably wouldn't say it out loud to too many people, but internally we say, that's not right. That's not fair. Is there any justice in this world? And today I want to give you an overriding statement that I trust that you write down. I trust that you take it home. I trust you take it to the bank with you and remember this for the rest of your life because this is vitally important. And we're going to see this, this statement rising up from the word of God as we look at it at this morning, as we look at Jesus, our king, who is on trial. And here is the statement I'd love for you to write down. God sees, God cares, and he has a plan. God sees, God cares, and he has a plan. And today we are going to take that statement and see how it applies to the word of God as we look at it here, as we look at the greatest. And I'm telling you, we're going to see today from the word of God and from historical writings that this is the greatest injustice in the history of the world, what took place, what happened to Jesus Christ as we are getting ready to celebrate, to remember, to rejoice over this Easter season in this next week. As we look at our king here today, as we look at King Jesus. And today we're celebrating Palm Sunday and this is the day that Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey to the cheering crowds yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save now, he, save us now. He's going to be our king. He's going to be amazing. Everything's going to be so different. That's what the people were thinking and so there was so much excitement on Palm Sunday because Jesus, the Messiah, was coming and, and, and he was going to change everything for them and and then as the week continued to go on, we see that, that things didn't go as, as they had planned or as very many people had, had, had honestly planned or ever saw this coming. And we see that his journey to the cross, as it is commonly called Holy Week or Passion Week, we see his passion, his love for you and for me as he went willingly and paid the price, the penalty for our sins that we deserve to pay for ourselves. But he has taken that 
through this great week that we celebrate. This, his road to the cross, I'm telling you, it was filled with cruelty, with abuse, with violence, and outright injustice. Injustice like this world has never seen, as we're going to see in a few moments. On the Monday of Passion Week, we see that Jesus entered the temple and, and, and he cleared it out of the money changers and the merchants because they had turned it into a, a house of worship and prayer, into a den of thieves, as he called it. As they were, uh, It was a place of extortion and greed, and, and the religious leaders were pocketing from some of that as well. And, and, and then on Tuesday of that week, he was back in Jerusalem and having it out with the religious leaders regarding his authority, and they were becoming even more angry and indignant with him. And and, and, and he spent more time than just teaching the, the multitudes, his disciples. He was teaching them on such topics as the second coming and the judgment to come. On Wednesday of that week, Judas agreed and conspired to make a deal with the religious leaders to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. On Thursday of that week, Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples in Jerusalem. He washes the feet of his disciples and introduces to them the Lord's Supper, something we'll be celebrating on Good Friday. And later on, he was in the garden with his disciples. He's praying, and his disciples, what are they doing? Hope no, what, not what any of you are doing here already yet. They're sleeping. They're sleeping, and, and it's in the garden that he's betrayed, arrested, the disciples flee, Peter denies Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And, and as you study this last week in the life of Jesus, I encourage you to be reading from the Gospels. And some of the Bible reading that plan that we've given you this week will even go through some of the aspects of the last week of Jesus' life. But as you encourage you to even study the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's a fascinating study as you see that... that just what Jesus went through. And, and we see as we study these four Gospels together that, that Jesus on that night, that night that he was betrayed into the early hours of Friday morning, Jesus would be placed on trial. And it consisted this trial of six different stages. Three of them were kind of were religious trials and three of them were political, all jammed together as the trial of the universe, not even trial of the century, trial of eternity that took place. And in less than 18 hours from celebrating the Passover, Jesus would be hanging on a cross. Incredible what took place in these days as we dig into this, you'll see, and just be amazed at, at what happened, at the injustice that we can look at. And in a moment, we're going to pick up the story in Luke chapter 23, but just prior to these events in, in, in Luke 23, and as you look at the other gospels, we see that Jesus was taken to the former high priest, Annas, who, who was um, kind of... The, he was the former high priest, but he still carried some weight and authority. And then he was taken to the current high priest, to Caiaphas' house. And he was questioned there. And he was questioned. And then he was beat up. He was blindfolded. And, and the guards and, and that were punching him in the face and, and mocking him, saying, if you're a prophet, who, tell us who punched you. And they punch him again. And, and so they beat him up. And, and this went on for a number of hours that he was there at the house of Caiaphas. And, and then we read at daybreak on the Friday morning, Jesus 
Jesus is brought before all the elders of the people, the leading priests and the religious leaders. They were all there together. And what they were trying to do here was to give the appearance that this was a legitimate trial. But it was far from that, as you're going to see. And as he is here before all of these religious leaders, they wanted one thing. They wanted one thing, and that was to be able to to have this guy die. And they were hoping that they could get him to to admit to, 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 to the thing that would be their smoking gun. And Jesus did that. And Jesus declared that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. And in Mark's gospel, we see the holy uh, or the high priest upon hearing Jesus' declaration that indeed he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of Man. He quotes from, from Daniel, the prophet. And, and with that, it was like, Boom, that's it. And the high priest in a dramatic kind of way rips his cloth, his cloth that he was wearing or his, 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 his house coat, I guess we would probably call it. But, but he rips his robes in, in just disgust for this blasphemy. And it's just like, good, we've got our smoking gun. Now we can have him put to death. However, there was a bit of a problem. You see, blasphemy was a penalty that was punishable by death, and this is what the Jewish leaders wanted. They, th- th- this was their goal, and, and now they were getting it. But there was a, a few little technical problems with them being able to do this. And these technical problems were, first of all, a few decades earlier, the Jews, because of the Roman rule of the area, lost their ability to enact capital punishment. Now, they still kind of did it on the side, but really, they had no authority to have someone um, put to death without Rome signing off on it. So they needed to get some Roman kind of approval for this. And, and so they also wanted Rome to sign off on this because they didn't want to be the guilty ones for putting Jesus on or, or for seeing Jesus die. Um, they wanted to, to pass the buck. They wanted to blame the Romans ultimately for this. And so they, they needed to take him to some Roman officials and they needed to take him to Pilate, who was the Roman representative in Judea. But there was another problem in this. Blasphemy was a capital crime for the Jewish people, but not for the Romans. The Romans had, had no such law that, that someone would die for the, the, the uh, violation of blasphemy. And so they needed to come up with some other charges against Jesus. And, and, and so th- they needed to, to bring some charges against Jesus that would stick and, and would allow him to be put to death in the way that they had wanted. And so we're going to pick it up here in Luke chapter 23. Here's what's taken place so far. Kind of giving you this description. We're going to continue on. It says, then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you have said so. As you study that, we're not going to study that this week. Encourage you. That was a powerful statement that Jesus made there. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all of Judea and and from Galilee, even to this place. Now in verse 6, this is interesting. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he had learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at the time. So when Herod saw Jesus... He was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. He wanted Jesus to do some tricks. 
He wanted Jesus to do a little magic for him. He heard about all the things that Jesus had been doing. Hey, Jesus, do some for me now. And so he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraigned him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with one another. So out of the six stages of the trials at this point, five of the six have now taken place of this illegal, bogus kangaroo court trial that Jesus had been placed on with the final encounter with Pilate yet to come. You know, so often when it comes to Holy Week, our focus is on the crucifixion and the resurrection, and we often don't study or look too much into the trials that Jesus faced here and, and to what he experienced. And so this morning, we want to dig a little bit into this. And, and as we go further into this story, I would encourage you just not to see this as a historical event, because it was definitely a historical event, but that this is something that we can learn from and be asking yourself the question, what can I learn from this? How does this story speak to my life today? How can I apply this? These, tr these truths that into my life, they are relevant and, and relatable to, to what we may be experiencing and what we're seeing in our world today. And may God speak to us as we dig into this here this morning. And so let's remember again, want to keep this in the forefront, that in all of this, God sees, God cares, and God has a plan. And his plan is good. His plan is good. Now we must understand that the Jews... They prided themselves on their sense of justice and fairness. This was a hallmark of who they were. In fact, as one studies their justice system, their justice system actually greatly favored the innocent. They wanted to make sure that if somebody was convicted of a crime, and especially a capital crime, it was slam dunk, guilty. There was absolutely no, no, no doubt at all towards this person's guilt. And so very much where, where we hear that statement even today, innocent until proven guilty, this is very much where this came from. In fact, in the Western world, much of our system of justice has been based on this system of justice that was set forth centuries earlier. And even as you read in, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, we see that this justice system is getting set up here in Deuteronomy 16, but it even carries into our day today in various forms. And so I, I believe we have this verse here on the screen. In Deuteronomy 16 or 18, it says, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns. The Israelites were getting ready to take over the promised land and to settle in. And, and so they're receiving these instructions from the Lord that they are to appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God has given you according to your tribes and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. Go on and read those verses that, that follow on there and, and they didn't want there to be political scandal and they, did, they wanted people to be judged righteously and fairly and so this has been set up and according to the Talmud and, and the Mishnah which is a part of that, these are compla, uh, compla, compilation of ancient Jewish writings that they're not inspired in scripture but they are compatible with biblical 
teaching, there's much that we can learn about their judicial system that we're going to look at here this morning, and we're going to see how it applied or didn't apply to the situation with Jesus. And you see, the Jewish writing stated that any community of 120 people or more could set up their own Sanhedrin council, which usually consisted of up to 23 members, always an odd number in case there was ever a, so there was never going to be a tie vote. The Sanhedrin, that word literally means sitting together. And here there would be appointed men that would sit and hear the complaints and the accusations, and they would make rulings based on witnesses and and based on, on what they were able to compile together, and their decisions were binding. They carried this authority. And so in Jerusalem, we see that they just didn't have a 23-member Sanhedrin. They had what was called the Great Sanhedrin, consisting of 70 members, as well as the high priest. So they had 71, so that they had that odd number. And so for the next few moments, let's take a look at some of the Jewish laws um, pertaining to to capital crimes and and to the various crimes that, that they faced, and especially when it came to the serious ones involving the death penalty. In order for someone to be convicted of a crime, it required three important elements. First of all, the trial had to be public. Never were these trials ever to be held in secret. They required uh, uh, to, to, to happen in a public setting, not in the high priest's house, like what took place here in the life of Jesus here um, on this night. They were entitled to a defense counsel. The accused was to have a defense counsel very much like how we have lawyers today that will represent us. And and so the accused could have a defense. Also, the third element that was vitally important was two reliable witnesses. Both the accuser as well as the defendant could bring forth their witnesses. And in order for someone to be found guilty, those witnesses had to be completely reliable and they would test their witness and what they would have to say. A side note, if you were a witness for in, in a case like this and if you were found to be a false witness, if you lied on the stand, you would be guilty of the exact same punishment that the person that you were a witness for would be receiving. So it was a very serious thing to be a false witness. People took that seriously because if it was found out you're a false witness, you would also be put to death. You would face that same punishment. And so, um, so, so they had these three important elements to them. But then there were some other things that went on that, that we see just totally violated the Jewish regulations regarding this here when it came to the trials of Jesus. Trials were never to be held at night, only during the day. Something else, they were never to be held during the days of feasts or festivals that were taking place. And what was taking place here? Passover had already started. And they were having this um, trial for Jesus. They put him on this kangaroo court kind of trial. And Passover was a long festival. So technically they couldn't try him until after Passover. Another thing, accusations against the accused were to be read publicly before the people. So in a public setting, the accusations were to be read out loud so that anyone around in in the court area would be able to hear. Another thing, the Sanhedrin were not allowed to even bring accusations. They were the ones that were sitting and listening. They weren't to be the ones listening, uh, making the accusations. And what's taking place here? In the life of Jesus, they are the ones bringing the accusations. Here's some more kind of interesting things about this. After a person was sentenced, found guilty, and sentenced to death, the execution wouldn't happen right away. 
Interestingly enough, the Sanhedrin would then go on a retreat for three days and they would fast and pray to seek God to determine whether or not they made the right decision or not. They wanted to make sure that this was done rightly and, and uh, of course that didn't happen. They were supposed to pray and seek God in, the, in these areas. Here's another thing, that if a vote was unanimous, it was automatically thrown out of court because they would, uh, and the charges would be dropped because they figured there must be a conspiracy. And that didn't happen here in the life of Jesus. They were all against Jesus. There was no one who came to his defense. Upon the decision of conviction, they were sent, um, they were to send out a messenger throughout the land on a horse and a white flag and, uh, and, and announcing the name of the accused and the sentence that he was facing, he or she was facing, and they would be allowed to, um, for other witnesses to come. Again, this didn't happen. None of this happened in the life of Jesus. All of it was a big, ah, huge violation. Didn't take, none of these things that were supposed to happen took place. This whole trial was a farce. It was a joke. It was just completely illegal, filled with injustice. Every rule, and there's more that we could look at, more things that, that even read this past week, um, these guys violated the, the very establishment that they prided themselves in, in keeping the law. These were the law keepers, and in this night, this group of religious leaders became the biggest lawbreakers this world has ever seen. This process from the arrest in the garden to Jesus hanging on the cross happened, as I said, in less than 18 hours. They wanted Jesus dead and they wanted him dead fast because they knew there were still many hundreds, even thousands of devout followers of Jesus. Many of them had no clue what was going on until they found out he was already hanging on the cross because it all happened in secrecy. It all happened privately behind closed doors. Now they knew that blasphemy was not by Roman law a capital crime and so they needed to take him to Pilate and they needed to get that Roman approval for this because they wanted it to appear to be legal, but it certainly was not. And so back in our text here in Luke 23 in verse 2, it says, and they began to accuse him. They take him to Pilate, and, and, and it says, they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, the king. They are saying he's a rebel, he's an insurrectionist, he's, he's misleading the nation, he's, he's forbidding people from paying their taxes to Caesar even. Can you believe that, Pilate? I mean, you know, Rome better be scared of this guy because you know what? He's, he's leading quite a revolution. Look at the crowds of people. Look at what he's doing. And he's telling them not even to pay their taxes. And, 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 and let's face it, money talks, right? And all of a sudden, I'm sure Pilate like, what? Is this, what's happening here? And, 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 and so they figure with, with these kind of charges against him, these are punishable kind of um, crimes that are punishable by death. And so, so this is really good, what, what they're saying to him. But these were all lies. Look how these experts are keeping the law. We're just lying through their teeth. Jesus was a model citizen, showing respect for and obedience to the Roman government, to the Roman law. He told people to be good citizens, to pay their taxes, to live good and godly lives. In fact, it was just earlier in this week, I believe it's in Luke chapter 20, that, that you see that so the religious leader set up some guys to go publicly and, and, and ask Jesus some questions and ask him about paying taxes to Caesar. 
And Jesus gives them a brilliant answer. And he says, you pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, pay your taxes and you give to God what God deserves what you are to give to God. And it says that the accusers that, that came to him, I just love it, they were silenced and amazed. They're like, that was a brilliant answer. That made such sense. But now these religious leaders are saying he's telling people not to pay their taxes to Caesar. What a bunch of lies. And then we see here in verse 3, it says, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. And Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. This guy's harmless. Case closed. Get him out of here. You're wasting my time. My brunch is getting cold. But they keep pushing him and, and they want Jesus killed and, and they want it to happen fast. They wanted it, this to be a quick thing. And so this is a good sized crowd of influential men. Pilate would have never had all of these influencers and all of these religious leaders all in his court area at this given time all at once. And so this was a big deal. And, 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 and Pilate was recognizing this and he, he's like, man, I, I, I got to please these people. I have to keep the Jews happy, you know, happy, happy Jews, happy, happy land and, and, and life will be good. And I don't want Rome hearing of any sort of troubles here. And so he needed to stay in their, their good books. And in verse five, it says, and, and they were urgent saying he stirs up trouble teaching throughout all Ju Judea and Galilee, even to this place. And then all of a sudden Pilate, he gets his way out. He's able to pass the book. He's like, is he a Galilean? Is he from Galilee? And they're like, yeah, yeah, he is. That's not my jurisdiction. That's Herod's. Herod was kind of the pilot of the north. He was, was, was the Roman overseer in, in Galilee. And he's like, hey, if he's a Galilean, oh, and Herod just happens to be here because Herod was actually kind of, he, he wasn't a full Jew, he was part Jew. And so he was in Jerusalem for the Passover festivities. And he's like, oh, Take him on over there. Isn't it so easy how Pilate was able to pass the buck? And these guys hated each other because years earlier, as, as history tells us, that it was a few years before this that, that Pilate had some Galileans put to death because of something they did. I don't know, maybe they didn't stir his coffee right or something. It was probably a little more serious than that. But he had them put to death. Herod found out about, what are you doing killing my people off? And so, and so Pilate is like, hey, I don't want to upset Herod. And so why don't you just take Jesus out the door, take him to Herod, not my problem. This is good. And so they take him to Herod. And, and as, as this takes place, um, we end up seeing that um, in, in verse 9, they get him to Herod and it says, so he questioned him with, at some length. But Jesus, he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraigned him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Herod just wanted to see some tricks. Herod was there. He's like, oh, I'm quite intrigued. This is the same Herod that had John the Baptist put to death when John the Baptist called him on his um, sexual immorality. And so now Herod had been hearing about this Jesus and was pleased to see Jesus, but Jesus did not answer him a word. Jesus remained silently. Look how this beautifully fulfills Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. This was written centuries before, centuries before this happened. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led 
Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus remained silent. And Herod mocks him, ridicules. They put on a cloak on him. And they make fun of him and they, Jesus says nothing. So he sends him back to Pilate. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. It's like, this guy did nothing wrong. Let's get him out of here. Verse 21. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found no fault in him, no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. Three times, Pilate told them, he's innocent. He's innocent. He's done nothing wrong. And so Jesus was flogged with a lead-tipped whip and turned over to be crucified. Finally, Pilate's like, fine, whatever. Give him a good beating and he's yours. The trial of Jesus before Pilate and Herod unequivocally affirmed that Jesus was innocent, undeserving of death that he was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. That's what John the Baptist declared when he saw him. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was innocent. He did nothing wrong. He did not deserve death. And as we see the injustice that took place in this story, the illegal trials, the mocking, the beating, you read, in other Gospels, that they pulled at his beard, they put a crown of thorns on his head. And finally, the conviction of an innocent man to die on a cross, a criminal's death. And you think, could no one see this? Could no one see what was going on? Could no one step in? Was there not just even one person? One of the Sanhedrin or a handful of them that thought this was wrong? Do you see what's going on? This isn't right. This isn't fair. Even looking at this, if a lawyer was to get hold of this and look at that, you're just like, it would just make your head explode just as far as all of the injustices that were done here through these trials. Now get this, this is something beautiful. And yet Jesus was willing to lose in the courtroom so that he might triumph through the cross. Jesus was willing to lose in the courtroom so that he might triumph through the cross. You see, God had predestined this cup of suffering for his son because he knew what it would bring. It would bring forth the salvation that would be available for all. His death would result in a resurrection, and that's what we get to party and celebrate next week, as well as salvation for all who believe and receive his gift that he offers how about for us? How about when we hear and see the anguish and pain and injustice and the difficult trials that we go through and we see and we at times wonder, God, what's going on? God, are you hearing my prayers? God, do you see this tragedy? Do you see this heartbreak? Do you see this abuse? And folks, in the same way that we see it here with Jesus and we can apply it to our own lives and whatever it is that we're facing, God sees, God cares, and he has a plan. His plan is good. 
His plan is good. And today God sees your family. He sees your life. He knows what's going on in your head right now. He knows the struggles. He knows the addictions. He knows the illness. He knows the betrayal, the injustice that's been done towards you. He knows about those rumors and the gossip that people have spread. He knows of the unfair things that have happened to you. And today, some of you have no doubt been falsely accused. You've had lies told about you, rumors spread, treated unfairly, even betrayed by close, trusted friends or family members. There are some of you here, perhaps even, that have been abused physically and emotionally. God cares. God has a plan. If there's abuse that is going on in your life right now, get out, report it. Tell me, tell the authorities, abuse is not to be taken. Um, and we are to stand up and, and, and let the justice take care of the, that situation if that is happening or it has happened. But he cares. He cares. Hebrews 4, we have the beautiful passage that we have a high priest who can sympathize. He sympathizes with what we are going through. Why? Because he's been there. Everything that we face, he has faced to the furthest degree. And so often, folks, this really for us, even today, it comes down to a crisis of faith. Do we believe that God is sovereign? As, as Jesus was standing there before his accusers, before the Sanhedrin just yelling, I can't imagine the amount of saliva and spit that would have been falling on his face, and then they actually started spitting on him, and, and what he endured and what he suffered, and, and then he's before Pilate and Herod and back to Pilate, and, and, and all of this is going on, and, and yet he knew there was something coming on the other side. Do we believe God is sovereign in what we are going through, that God is in control? You can't respond any with indifference. Indifference won't get you through. It's like, oh, well, whatever happens, happens. I guess, you know, that, that's, just, you know that's just in the cards for me. Or maybe the injustice or the difficulties or betrayals or whatever we've gone through, it's caused us to shake our fist not only at people but even at God and say, God, what are you doing? This doesn't make sense. That's not the answer either. It's in these times we need to run towards him. We need to run towards him in, in faith and in trust, knowing that he does see and he does care. And as we, we, we trust in him and as we wait on him and wait for him, he has a plan and his plan is good. Just over the last few days, I've just been recounting and even early this morning, just, just some of the trials and, and, and storms that I have faced in my own life. Seasons of struggle, sometimes from my own doing. Sometimes it's, it's been internal struggles and areas of sin and, and areas of fear as well as at times at the hands of others. And I've been led to, at times, honestly, ask those questions, and God can handle all of our questions. I'm like, God, where are you? This makes no sense. It's not fair. I look around at others, and it seems their lives are going on. How come they're not suffering? How come I'm suffering? And, and I'm trying to do good. I'm trying to live for you. How come this is happening? Have you ever been there? If you're not, you will sooner or later, but I'm sure we've all been there in one way or another. But when I come to the point, time and time again, in every one of the seasons of struggle and, 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 and difficulties and the storms that I have faced, when I come to that point of surrender, and that point of surrender is daily, 
and say, okay, God, I don't understand this, but I'm going to trust you. I know that you see. I believe your word that it says that you care and that you have a plan and that your plan is good. And I remember at times thinking, and, and I'll remember the places where I just shook my head and said, I don't see how there's any way any good could ever come out of this. And not because of my faithfulness, but because of God's faithfulness. God has allowed those struggles and those issues and those storms and those questions to be answered in some beautiful ways. There's still some that I'm waiting for, and maybe I won't get the answers, but, but God sees. He knows. His plan, his perspective isn't for us just here on this earth. It is eternal. There's so much more going on. And we put so much stock and we put so much of our time, energy, efforts on the things here that won't last. And as we turn our eyes on Jesus, as we look to him, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, we start to slowly at times, and, and at times then it's a quick kind of thing, we start to see the greater eternal perspective of what he's doing. And we must keep our eyes fixed on him. We walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it on our own. We need to be abiding in, in, in our relationship with God, abiding in the word and in prayer. We need the body of Christ. We need others to walk with us. In every one of these seasons of struggle and trials and that I've gone through, I've tried to, to, to be a man, at least what the world says, be a man, and try to do it myself, and try to fix myself and not tell others. That's a lie. That's not being a true man. A true man is one who recognizes their weakness and calls out for the help of others and say, time out or I surrender, I need help. I can't do this alone. We need the body of Christ. We need to confess our sins, our faults, our struggles to one another so we can have others walk with us, pray with us, hold us accountable. Keep our eyes fixed on him. Now listen to this. If God could bring forth the greatest good, which is our salvation, from the greatest injustice and tragedy the cross, he can speak into every injustice and tragedy we will, we have or we will ever face. And you can go to the bank on that. That is truth. If God could bring forth the greatest good, which is salvation, which is God's gift to us from the greatest injustice and tragedy, the trials that he faced on the cross, he can speak into every injustice and tragedy we have or will ever face. The trial of Jesus, the cross, becomes our symbol of hope. Do we believe God is sovereign over all? In all of the light and the dark areas in our world, that he will triumph through the tragedies, through life and through death? Do you believe that God sees you? Do you believe that God cares and that he has a plan? The cross screams yes. The cross screams yes, that he cares. He sees. He has a plan and his plan is good. That is the truth from the word of God for us today. Let's pray. Father, as we look at what you allowed your son to go through, we say thank you. 
We thank you for a savior, Jesus, the lamb of God, the perfect lamb of God who became that perfect sacrifice for our sins. The lamb of God who has taken away the sins of this world. Oh God, I pray that we would run to this truth here today and we would be able to see our situation. We would see our struggles. We would see our battles. And we'd be able to see the injustice and, and, and the turmoil in our world from your perspective. And we would worship you and we would wait to see your goodness. We would wait and we would see and behold the glory of God in the midst of all of this. And we would be worshipers even while we're waiting. So we're waiting for the answers to come. And some of those answers won't come till heaven. And so we'll wait till then. And even then, it won't even matter then. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. Oh, would we be looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. In these moments, I would encourage you to look at your own life and some of the areas of, that you are holding out on God, perhaps areas of struggle. There's the question marks and maybe even some anger and hostility towards others or even towards God in the things that you are going through or things you've experienced. Maybe it's even, it even goes back to as far as how God made you. You're not happy with that. Or it's through decisions of others or decisions you've made and and it's a season of struggle and it's a difficulty. Would you be able to look to Jesus who kept his faith and his confidence? That, that was an issue that got settled in the garden that night before he was betrayed when he, when he said, not your will be done, not my will be done, but yours. And may we pray that similar prayer and trust you and believe that your resurrection and what's waiting on the other side of that obedience of being faithful and trusting you, we would see the goodness of our God, whether it's here on earth or one day in heaven. May, would we remain faithful in trusting and following you?